Let's take our Bibles um, and with anticipation, let's turn to Luke chapter 18. We've been in the book of Luke for a long time, uh, over two years, and I was mapping things out. I think we're going to finish it in 2015. So uh, that's the plan as of right now, but things could change. I don't know. But that's the plan. Um, So we're in Luke 18, and we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 14, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Uh, If you listen to the wisdom of this age long enough, you're going to find out and be convinced that the key to success is believing in yourself. That's sort of the key, isn't it? need to believe in myself. In fact, people would say that if you believe in yourself, nothing is impossible. You can do anything. Um, One of my favorite YouTube clips is of this little boy who just learns how to ride a bike. I don't know if you've seen this. He learns to ride a bike, and he's so excited. And his dad says, you know, do you have any words of inspiration for the other kids out there trying to learn how to ride their bike? And he goes into this full speech, you know, stands at the end of the cul-de-sac, and it's very arousing, almost William Wallace-like, you know. And and, uh, he's there, and part of it is he says, I know you can do it. If you believe in yourself, you can ride a bike. And he ends it with saying, thumbs up, everybody, for rock and roll. And it's, it's hilarious, so you got to check this out. But anyways, this idea of, of believing in ourselves, right? That's, that's, and so he's listened well. He knows that if I believe in myself, I can do anything. But is that true? I mean, is believing in ourselves really all that we need? I mean, that's what we're told. Is that, is that true? That will, will self-confidence, will that solve all of our problems? I was reading a book this week called Orthodoxy by a a guy named G.K. Chesterton, and about every other sentence in the book is quotable, it feels like. But he says this, The men who believe in themselves are all in lunatic asylums. <laughs> he says that, that if, he explains further in the book, he says that the point is that to believe in ourselves is actually not a sign of strength, but it's, it's a sign of, of weakness. It's, it's a sign of pride. It's the conviction that, that I can trust myself more than I can trust anyone else, including even God himself, that I'm going to take care of things on my own. Well, if I'm not supposed to believe in myself, then who am I supposed to believe in, right? Or what am I supposed to believe in? I'm glad you asked, because that's what today's parable is going to talk about. And it's going to ask this question, who or what are we trusting in? Along with that question, it's going to also ask, how do we treat others? And those may seem like they don't mesh, that maybe they're, they're totally opposite, they're not connected at all, but I promise you that they are. How, how, who we trust in, what we trust in, and how we treat others are, are very related. And I think that Jesus, in this parable, in verses 9 through 14 of Luke 18, that the, the main idea that he wants us to understand is, that he's going to drive to is this, humility trusts in God alone, and treats others with love and grace. It's going to push us towards this idea of humility, and humility, true humility, trusts in God alone, and treats others with love and grace. So let's read this parable, and see how it conveys this truth. Let me remind you that a, a parable is a story told by Jesus. It's a, called an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. He's telling it to make a, a deeper point. And so the, the events in this story didn't actually happen. I'm sure they were based on, on actual thoughts and, and things that were said around that time. And, and so we, we know that it's, it's true in that, but in, in the fact that it actually happened, it, it did not. It's just a, a story. Um, but let's read this together. I'll, I'll start in, in Luke 18, verse 9. It says, He, Jesus, told this parable 
to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. What a wonderful parable. Points us to this idea. Humility trusts in God alone and treats others with love and grace. You notice right away there in in verse 9 that this is like the the previous parable. and, And Luke is going to tell us exactly who this is directed at and why this parable was told. So verse 9 serves as an introduction to the parable. And so I just want to give you a couple things before we sort of dive into the meat of the story. And the first is this, that this parable, this is a parable with a a specific focus and audience. Okay, so it has specific people in mind. It's not sort of a, a Hail Mary thrown to the end zone hoping that someone grabs it. No, this is like a direct spiral thrown right at one Receiver. I mean, it's it's coming right at this person. So who's it coming at? It's it's thrown at the Pharisees, um, but it's 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 thrown to to all of us who are like the Pharisees. All of us who, according to verse nine, who trust in ourselves that we are righteous and treat others with contempt. So that doesn't apply just to the Pharisees. It applies to many people in the crowd that day, and it probably applies to many of us. And so we should pause and think. This is important. Verse 9 is key to understanding the rest of the passage. So we need to pause and ask ourselves some questions as to how this is going to apply to us. So the the first thing is, is, do I trust in myself and my perceived righteousness? Notice I said perceived righteousness. Do do I trust in myself and my perceived righteousness? So this has to do with with my relationship with God. So this vertical relationship with God. Am I basing my standing before God on the good things that I do? On the way that I live my life? Am I believing in myself? And finding that, that believing in myself is the source of all my hope for eternity. So if that has to do with my vertical relationship, the second, has to, the second question is going to have to do with my horizontal relationship with, with others. And it's this question, do I treat others with contempt and disdain? Do I look down on other people? Have I exalted myself above other people, especially people that I see as sinners? Am I an elitist? Do I walk through life with an attitude of, of comparison? A heart that is always measuring others against myself and always finding that everyone else is falling short of my glory and and my perfection. I think if we're honest that these questions pierce every one of our hearts, don't they? What do I trust in? Do I trust in myself? Do I treat others with contempt? Because these questions, they deal with the two 
the greatest areas of life, the things that we should be most concerned about, how we relate to a holy God, our creator, how do we relate to him, and also how do we relate to people that are created in God's image. These are the two greatest relationships, the things that we most need to worry about in life, and Jesus zeroes in on them here. And so this parable is is a spiral, and it's coming right at every one of us, and we better figure out how we're going to catch it. So this is a parable. It's got a specific audience. The second thing I just say as introduction is that this is a parable of contrasts. So the parable opens in verse 10 with two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. You might imagine it as a stage. Two characters walk onto the stage and we're going to hear their prayers. And in hearing their prayers, we're going to see their hearts. And Jesus wants us to ask as we compare these two individuals, who is right? And not just who is, who is praying rightly, but rather whose heart is right? Who is thinking rightly about God and others and themselves? Now, we know the ending of the story, because I already read it, and you probably heard it. But, but if, if Jesus is telling this to the crowd, the assumption of the crowd, well, the assumption of the crowd, those that hadn't heard Jesus teach anything yet, the assumption is that, in fact, the Pharisee, is going to be the hero of the story, and the tax collector is going to be the villain. But Jesus is a great storyteller. And like any good storyteller, you can never assume that you know where he's headed. And so we should read this story with eyes that assume we we don't necessarily know the end. There's always twists and turns in what Jesus says. And the point in part of this story is, is for us to step back and say, wow, I never saw that coming. The tax collector is the hero? So this is a parable of, of contrast. That's the second thing to think about. So with these thoughts in mind, let's, let's kind of jump in and see the, the contrast that Jesus is making as he's calling us to, to ponder who or what we're trusting in and how, how we treat others. All right, so here comes the Pharisee. He would be welcomed out onto the stage uh, with smiles, with nods of approval. Um, because as much as we think about Pharisees in a negative light, these were the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They were respected, they were holy, they were upright, they were godly individuals. And so he, he comes into the temple and he walks up to the front and he prays, and he prays out loud. We don't have to strain to hear him. His, his voice is, is very loud, it's very clear, and it's bouncing off the walls, and we hear this prayer of thanks. He says, God, I thank you. Now what's he thanking God for? For God's kindness and grace, for God's blessings in his life, what does he say? He says, God, I thank you for me. (laughs) I thank you that I'm not like other people, and that I'm very righteous. I thank you that I fast. I thank you that I give tithes. Now, there's a way to thank God for the work that he's doing in our lives, isn't there? There's a way to thank God for the, the evidences of his grace in our lives, but that's obviously not what this guy's doing. He's trusting in himself. He's trusting in his own righteousness, and he exalts himself above other people. And in his prayer, he lists out titles that don't describe him. Here's who I'm not. So, so he thinks about his righteousness, and he sees it in the things that he doesn't do, first of all. So he's not an extortioner, meaning he's not a robber. He's not a swindler. He's, he's not a thief. He doesn't take from other people unrighteously. He doesn't steal money from his mom's purse. He doesn't shoplift at Dollar General. He doesn't lie to people to get money from them. That's who this guy is. He's upright. This is probably a subtle jab at the tax collector standing in the back, you know. The tax collector would have been a Jew 
a Jewish man who was hired by the Roman government to collect taxes from his brother and sister Jews and to take them to Rome. So he was viewed as, as a traitor, and some surely would have labeled him as a robber, as a swindler, as, as a thief. He was a tax man. He works for the IRS, you know. And if you have a small dislike for people that work for the IRS, then think about the Jews, and the Jews hated tax collectors, despised them. In the Gospels, the tax collectors are always lumped in with who? The sinners. And in Matthew, they're lumped in with prostitutes. They're lumped in with the outcasts of society. So the Pharisee is happy that he is not an extortioner. Then The Pharisee also thanks God that he is not unjust. He's not crooked in any of his dealings. He, he's, this, this is probably another jab at the tax collector, I think. He's praying out loud. The tax collector hears this. And tax collectors weren't paid by the Roman government. They didn't get a salary. So it's kind of like, imagine, being a waiter or a waitress, but you get no salary. You survive solely on, on tips and on, on money that, that, that comes in on top of things. And so he's, he's viewed as... Uh, he. he He's not paid, so he's expected to collect extra money on top of the taxes that are due to Rome. That's how he makes his living. And so greed and, and injustice, these are easy to creep into. These would be easy things to fall into for this, this guy. And so the Pharisee looks at this guy out of the corner of his eye, at the tax collector, and he compares himself to this man, and he thinks about how just he is, how, how all his dealings are filled with, with righteousness, unlike that guy. Third, the Pharisee says he's not an adulterer. Of course, that would most naturally refer to someone who is unfaithful to their spouse. And that very well could be what it's referring to here. Probably more like that. But I wonder maybe if this isn't another jab at the Pharisee, or at the tax collector, I'm sorry. Because James talks about some, about this spiritual idolatry. And he says that friendship with the world is enmity towards God. So you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. And tax collectors were, were friends of the world. I mean, they, all their interactions with non-Jews made them habitually unclean, according to the Old Testament law. So the Pharisee may have been referencing this kind of spiritual idolatry about the man that's standing behind him. And that comparison makes him feel more holy. Well, if all these are subtle jabs at the tax collector, then and maybe the tax collector doesn't catch them all, the Pharisee is, is extremely clear in his fourth thing that, he is not, that he's thankful that he is not, I'm thankful that I am not a tax collector. <laughs> You know, there's nothing like seeing the faults of other people that can make us feel really great about ourselves. I think that's the point of reality TV. <laughs> I think we watch reality TV so we can feel better about ourselves. You know, it's a chance to look at other people's lives and to feel superior. <laughs> to say, you know, I, I can't believe she said that. I would never say that. I can't believe they hoard all that stuff. I mean, that makes my basement look like nothing. I can't believe she's wearing that. I would never in a million years wear that. Boy, his life's falling apart. Glad I'm not him. Glad I got everything together. Well, at least compared to him, I got everything together. How easy it is to see the sins of others and to feel righteous and yet be blind to our own sins. Isn't that what Jesus talks about? When we try to take the the splinter out of someone's eye, and we don't realize that we have a two-by-four sticking out of our own. It's very easy to do. Well, the Pharisee makes this list 
And he realizes, no, he's none of these things. Rather, he considers himself to be extra righteous. Not only because of the, 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 the things that he doesn't do, but also because of the righteous things that he does do. We see that in verse 12. He talks about the, the great things that he does. I fast twice a week. There was only one fast proclaimed in the Old Testament on the Day of Atonement. That was the only one that everyone was required to do. But this Pharisee and many other Pharisees fasted two days a week. And he says, look how holy I am. How many of you fasted two days this week? I didn't. This guy feels pretty holy. He says, I give tithes of all I get. Now, people were supposed to tithe on certain things, but not on everything. And this guy was probably tithing on everything, down to the herbs in his garden, we're told in other places. But also even that he tithes on things that he buys. So maybe this person didn't tithe on it when they first got it, so he buys it and he tithes on what he has bought. What a righteous man. And, And he surely thinks so. What a prayer, huh? Can you imagine if when Trevor got up here to pray the prayer of confession and thanksgiving that, that he says, he gets up here and he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like all these other people. <laughs> or, or he lumps us all in, you know, so we all can all be in the group. I thank you that the, the members of this church aren't filthy like everyone else. You know, I thank you that we're in church this morning, unlike all those pagans that are sleeping in. Can you imagine? I remember my, my roommate and I one time, my roommate Nate, some of you have met him. We were praying together at Moody, and uh, we, were, we were praying, and I, I started my prayer. I said, Lord, I, I thank you that I'm not like other men are. And it was just a joke. You know? <laughs> and, and he thought I was serious at first, and we had a good laugh about it. And it's funny because it's, it's so ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, can you imagine praying like that, saying a prayer like that out loud? We, we wouldn't say a prayer like that out loud, but I think that prayer often bounces around in our hearts, doesn't it? Lord, I thank you that I'm not like that person. I thank you that I'm better than that person. None of us would ever say that out loud. There's a sense in which you know you got to respect this guy. But what is it? The prayer. What is it? What does it reveal about this guy's heart? It's revealing something, isn't it? And it reveals one simple word, and it's pride. He is just full of. Pride. It reveals a man who trusted in himself, who trusted in his own righteousness and what he did not do and what he did do. And because of that outward righteousness, and here's the connection between trusting and treating others a certain way, because of this, this pride, this feeling of superiority, his feelings of being righteous, he looks down on everyone else. You, it, self-righteousness, if that's what makes us right before God, then this is a good prayer. It makes sense, doesn't it? To exalt in what you've done. But God's standard isn't other people, right? Who's he comparing himself to? Himself to? All these other people, all these extortioners and these unjust people and this tax collector and adulterers. I'm not like that. But God's standard isn't other people, is it? What's God's standard? God's standard is God. <laughs> And God is perfect. He's perfectly righteous. And, and the failures of others don't matter one bit. Because God doesn't grade on a curve, you know. There's, there's, the, the failures of others don't lift your grade up higher. We're all compared to God. And we're all found wanting. How easy it is to feel self-righteous. To treat others with contempt. With disdain. Do you think that's how people view Christians sometimes? How people think about the church? 
Do we exalt ourselves as superior to others? Do we emphasize our own personal righteousness so that we can highlight the sins of others? There's an effect of holy living that causes that to rise up in other people. This idea of being a holier-than-thou or a holy Joe or something like that. There's part of living righteously that exposes the sins of others. That's just a natural overflow of it. So if I'm walking in holiness and someone is not, they're going to look at me and they're going to say, you're holier than I am. That, that's something that happens. That's not something we're supposed to flaunt, though. <laughs> that's not supposed something you're supposed to stand up in front of the church and pray about. It's not something that we're called to point out and to discuss. Our, our job is not to announce how thankful we are that we're not like everyone else and then parade all our goodness before others. And we need to be careful that we, we want to walk in holiness, yes. But, but our job is not to flaunt that before others and to make others uh, feel like they're terrible because of how great we are. Well, we could say more about this Pharisee. But let's move on. The Pharisee, we can imagine him still kind of standing on the stage of the play. He's front and center. But, but way in the, in the background on the stage, maybe back in the shadows, we sort of see this, this figure. And we only notice him because we start to hear some sort of a strange sound. And we come to realize that it's, it's the sound of, of this man, and he's standing in the background, and he's, he's beating his chest is what he's doing. That's what the text says, right? He's beating his chest. He's not front and center. He's, he's far away. He's in humility, and he's, he's beating his chest. And it's not some sort of like, look at me beating his chest. It's, it's a beating of, of contrition, of, of remorse, of, of repentance. Luke says that this is what the crowd did when they walked away from Jesus after he had died, when he had been crucified. They beat their breasts. This man's head is, is down. You can see him, can't you? Look at him back there. His head's down. He doesn't lift his eyes up. That was the typical posture of prayer would be to lift your eyes to heaven, but he's looking down. He's beating his breast. And then you kind of hear his prayer. I mean, it's a simple, it's, it's only one sentence. It was probably one that he just kept repeating. It makes no mention of his own personal accomplishments. It would seem as if he's praying without any thought for anyone else that might be in that room. And he says it just loud enough that we can kind of make out the words. He says it a couple times and we finally get the gist of what he's saying. He says, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's interesting, both prayers begin the same way, don't they? God, but they're the similarities completely in. This task collector, he's, he's asking for mercy, he says. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that, that word, it's, it's extremely important. The, the word there, there for mercy, it carries the idea of, of eliminating, of, of wiping out all the obstacles and the alienation that's found in a, in a broken relationship. It's found in Hebrews 2.17. Listen to the words of Hebrews 2.17. It speaks about Jesus, and it says, Therefore he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful, that's not it, and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation. There it is. Same word propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, the word propitiation, that's probably not in any of your work emails or in the article in Time magazine that you read this week. That's not a a word that we use too often, but it's an extremely important word. The author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus, in dying on the cross, became our propitiation, that he took 
this, our sins upon himself, and he took the punishment for our sins, the punishment that was due to us, that he takes that upon himself. When we stop comparing ourselves to others and we begin to compare ourselves to God, then we realize that we have all sinned. And we realize that we all deserve God's wrath. And we realize that God's wrath on us is eternal death in hell. And we are lost. And we cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And what we need is mercy because Jesus, being our propitiation in dying, He takes the penalty for our sin and He absorbs all the wrath of God that is due to us. He takes the penalty that we deserve to show us mercy. This tax collector knew he was a sinner. If you notice in the text, the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. There's actually an article there. It could be the sinner. He he sees himself as the sinner in need of mercy. And not, not, not a mercy that we think about, okay? This isn't a mercy that says, that's okay, you'll do better next time. <laughs> he doesn't want that kind of mercy. He knows, I, I don't need that kind of mercy. I need the kind of mercy that's going to wipe this out. He has no false sense of his own holiness, like our friend the Pharisee. He knows that he needs mercy that's going to deal with the anger of God against his sin. He needs a mercy that's going to wipe out that sin, that's going to wipe out and take care of the punishment that is due to him. And so he stands there, and that's what he asks for. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Have you ever asked God for that kind of mercy? I think many of you have, but I think it's good to ask. Not not a mercy that says, that's okay, try harder, you'll do better next time. That's not the mercy that you need. That's not the mercy that any of us need. We need a mercy that's going to wipe things out. We need a mercy that's going to wipe away our sin and make us right with God. It's the mercy that we all need, tax collectors and Pharisees alike whether we know that we're sinners and whether we are trapped in sin or whether we think that we are righteous and suddenly realize we're not. We all need a mercy that makes us right before God. And Jesus is the only one that can provide that. And we know that the tax collector gets it right because at the end of the parable, Jesus gives his assessment of these two men. And he says that one of them went home righteous, right with God, Justified, And it wasn't the one that everyone expected. So you might imagine on our stage, the Pharisees still front and center, and the tax collectors back in the shadows, and the play's over, and Jesus sort of comes out into the background, and he puts his arm around the tax collector, and maybe a spotlight shines in the back, and Jesus says, this man went home justified. End of play. This man went home justified. There's another key word. Right up there with that, God be merciful to me, justified. Oh, man. It's, it's a legal term. It means that, that the mercy that the man asked for, the kind of mercy that he asked for, is the kind of mercy that he received, that he was made right with God. It has this idea of being declared righteous, being declared holy, of being free of charges. Again, it's this legal term. It's the idea of maybe you're in a trial and you're convicted for murder and you are sentenced to Death, and you deserve it because you did it. And the judge says, I'll die in his place. And the judge dies in our place, and therefore the penalty is paid for, and you are justified. There is nothing else. The price has been paid, and you are made right. Or it's the idea of maybe owing a massive amount of debt to someone. 
And those people don't just forgive that debt from you. They actually pay the debt somehow to themselves. And they wipe it out. And it is gone, never to be seen again. Justified. Made right. So we all want want to be justified. I want to be right before God. We all need that. So what's the difference? What's the difference between the Pharisee and the tax collector? I think it's the difference between pride and humility. And I think that comes out in the end, doesn't it? Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let let me just kind of break down the differences here between pride and humility. So I want to give you a series of comparisons between what pride says and what humility says, okay? Pride prays, I'm righteous, God. Be thankful for me. Humility prays, I'm a sinner, God. Be merciful to me. Pride looks at others and says, I'm so much better than them. I'm not a sinner. Humility looks at others and says, I'm so much worse than them. I am the sinner. Pride says, the problem with the world is is out there, and it's in the unrighteousness of others. And the, the solution is in me and in my righteousness. But humility says, the problem with the world is in me and my unrighteousness. And the solution is in Jesus and his righteousness. Pride says, my righteousness justifies me. But humility says, Jesus' righteousness justifies me. The prideful seek exaltation, and they will be humble. But the humble seek contrition, and they will be exalted. It's the difference between night and day. The difference between the prideful and the humble. So what are we? Where are we at? I think I think the way that we ask this, the way that we come to understand where we're at is, is maybe these going back to, to verse nine and asking these questions again. What what are we trusting in? What or who are you trusting in? If I'm trusting in myself and my own righteousness, then then I, I'm I'm prideful. If I'm trusting in the good things that I do for my standing before God, I'm trusting in the wrong thing. If I'm trusting in Jesus and what he has done, if I'm trusting in the mercy of God and the fact that he can justify me, he can make me right, that's where I want to stand. What are you trusting in? If if you have asked God for that mercy and you're standing trusting in Christ, then that, that's going to change the way that you walk through life, isn't it? It's certainly going to the change the way you think about other people. And that's the next question. What, what are we trusting in and how are we treating others? That's going to flow from this. So this our relationship with God and how we are made right with God is going to change how we relate to other people. So if I think about my relationship to God and I'm trusting in myself, then I will treat others with contempt and with disdain. And with pride. And I will look down on everyone else. But if I walk through life recognizing. But for the grace of God. I am a sinner condemned to death. If I recognize that. If I walk through life beating my chest saying God be merciful to me a sinner. Won't that change this relationship? Won't that change the way that I treat others? I think that's a way to think about this. Here's a way to apply this passage. How do you beat your chest before God? Do you beat your chest like this? Look at me, God. Look at all the good things I've done. Or do you come to God and you say, God, 
Be merciful to me, a sinner. It's going to change the way we think about other people. We're not going to come to God with with pride and and self-exaltation. We're not going to look down on other people. We're We're not going to judge them because we're going to recognize that there go I except for the grace of God. I think there's a phrase in our vocabulary that we need to completely get rid of. Okay? And it's this. Those people. Let's never say those words. Ever. Those people. It's a phrase that can creep into our hearts and even into our mouths. It's a phrase that divides. It's not just those words, because in this passage, what are the words? The words are, this tax collector. (laughs) It's any kind of word that, that create division. It's words like, that guy, or that woman, or those people. It's a phrase that points a finger. It's a phrase that builds a wall of self-righteousness. Sets us apart from other people. Exalts us as better than other people. You know, even in ministering to other people, we can get this kind of attitude, can't we? A prideful attitude where people become projects instead of souls. It's so easy to fall into that. But we're all fellow sinners. And, and, if, and if we realize that we have been shown mercy, that we all come to God in the same way, then we will treat others differently. If we put our hope in Christ, then we see that, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, and, and you didn't get in by some special pass. We all come the same way. No one went around the cross. Everyone came through the cross. And the way to get through the cross is on our knees saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And if we have done that, then we will look at everyone else and we will treat them not with contempt, but with kindness and with grace and with mercy. We won't turn a blind eye to their sin because God doesn't turn a blind eye to sin. But in love, we will, we will say, come to Christ. I, I'm just like you. I'm just like you, except God has shown me mercy. Humility trusts in God alone. Are you trusting in God alone? And humility treats others with love and grace. And one's going to flow from the other. If we properly understand how we have come to Christ, then we will know how to relate to other people. Jesus calls us to this kind of humility. And remember this, Jesus never calls you to go somewhere that he has not gone himself. He never says, go there. He says, come here. And Jesus has modeled this humility for us. He has fulfilled this humility for us. And he will give us the strength to walk in it. I want you to hear these words about our great Savior from Philippians chapter 2. And with this we'll close. Paul writes in Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, now it's going to talk about Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, If anyone had a reason to boast, it was Jesus. He was in the form of God. He did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself 
by becoming, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus humbles himself, and as the last part of that verse says, those who humble themselves will be exalted. Therefore, verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him, on Jesus, the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Hallelujah, God. We thank you for Jesus. We are so lost without Christ. There's nothing we can come before you and beat our chest in pride about. So we thank you that Christ was willing to humble himself, that he became obedient to you, became obedient to death, even on a cross. And Lord, you have highly exalted him. You have lifted him up to the glory of God the Father, Lord, to your glory. We take no glory for ourselves. There's nothing we can come to you and say, look at me. You deserve, I deserve to be here, Lord. None of us have that. We are all sinners in need of grace. So, Lord, help us to see that, to walk through life with a humility that trusts in you alone. And then, God, make us people that that love others, that treat others with love and with grace, because that's what you have shown to us. Give us a mind like Jesus. Lord, I pray for our church, that we would not be a church that points fingers or builds walls or talks about those people. Lord, but we would, we would see the need to, to call all people to repentance and faith because that's the only way we have been saved. But let us love others. Let us show kindness and grace as we speak the truth. Jesus, thank you for these words. They are, they are hard and yet they are comforting. They, they, they sting and they heal. We thank you for the cross. And we pray all this. In Jesus' name, amen.